Let's pray. Father, we thank you for today. Lord, I pray that you would make us into the church body that you want us to be, that we would be subject to your headship, to your lordship, Lord, and that we would follow you in whatever you ask of us. Lord, I pray that you would, you would speak to young people in here, to the old people in here, to everybody in between, Lord, and that you would call them to something. Call them to your ministry, to building the kingdom. Lord, give them an idea, give them a, uh, um, a leading in that direction. Lord, I pray that we would just glorify you. Father, don't make it about what happens in this service. We're not about that. That's great. We're, we're here to be equipped. We're here to, to, to be transformed, to look more like you. But, Father, I pray that you would just take us out of here and help us to be light in a very dark world. Give us those opportunities with the people that are hurting. Lord, I look at the statistics on suicide, and it, it blows my mind. Lord, put us in a path. Put us in a path to stop that. Lord, to be a part of doing your work. Lord, help us to be able to tell somebody there is a God who created them just the way they are, that loves them, and wants to radically change their lives. Lord, give us that opportunity, Father. Father, I pray as the praise team comes that um, our, our, our focus would be on you and that we'd give you all glory, Lord. We just ask this in your name we pray. Amen. You embrace the power of sin and darkness, whose love is mighty and so much stronger. The King of glory, the King above all kings. Who shakes the whole earth with holy thunder and leaves us breathless in awe and wonder. The King of glory, the King above all kings. This is amazing grace. This is unfailing I sing for all that you've done for me. 
You may be seated. So we had some technical difficulties, and uh, the people in the live stream didn't get to hear all the bulletins and everything like that, and they didn't get to hear all the bad things that I said about them. So that just stays in between here, and we don't tell them, all right? Uh, but no, if you're watching on the live stream now, we will have the bulletin on our website, willardnaz.org. Uh, hopefully today, and there are a lot of things that you can look in there and get. One of the, the key things, though, that we want you to be aware of is, first of all, we appreciate you. Um, we miss you. If you want to come back in your jammies, you're welcome to come back. Uh, but we are going to have communion on March 28th, and we said that if you would like to have communion with us and experience that, first of all, you can buy a cracker and grape juice and, and do that. But we also have communion elements that we will drop off to you. So if you'd like me to do that, you just text me or send me that information, and I'll get you those communion elements. Uh, otherwise, you can get them yourself, like I said. And if, you're, if you know somebody that doesn't watch our live streams that is a part of this church, and you can get a message to them that if they want to have communion, I'll come to their house and do communion with them. But otherwise... March 28th, we want to do that. So, Today I'm going to be reading from uh, the book of 2 Kings, uh, specifically chapter 22, verses 1 through 20. I'll also be reading a passage from the book of Mark, Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. And I'll be reading from the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 8, verses 5 through 13. And then I'm just going to be reading one verse from the book of James, James 4, 8. But let's begin our reading from 2 Kings chapter 22, beginning with verse 1. Josiah was eight years old when he became king, and he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jedidah, the daughter of Adiah of Boscath. And he did what was right in the sight of the Lord and walked in all the ways of his father David. He did not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. Now it came to pass in the 18th year of King Josiah that the king sent Shaphan the scribe, the son of Azaliah, the son of Meshullam, to the house of the Lord, saying, Go up to Hilkiah the high priest, that he may count the money which has been brought into the house of the Lord, which the doorkeepers have gathered from the people, and let them deliver it into the hand of those doing the work, who are the overseers in the house of the Lord. Let them give it to those who are doing the are in the house of the Lord doing the work of repair, the work, excuse me, to repair the damages of the house, the carpenters and builders and masons, and to buy timber and hew stone to repair the house. However, there be no accounting made with them of the money delivered into their hand because they deal faithfully. Then Hilkiah the high priest said to Shaphan the scribe, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan and he read it. So Shaphan the scribe went to the king, bringing the king word, saying, Your servants have gathered the money and found in the house and have delivered it into the hand of those who do the work, who oversee the house of the Lord. Then Shaphan the scribe showed the king, saying, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book, and Shaphan read it before the king. Now when it, it happened when the king heard the words of the book of the law that he tore his clothes then the king commanded Hilkiah the priest, Ahiakim the son of Shaphan, Akbor the son of Micaiah, and Shaphan the scribe, and Asiah, servant of the king, saying, Go inquire of the Lord for me, 
for the people and for all Judah concerning the words of this book that have been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is aroused against us because our fathers have not obeyed the words of the book to do according to all that is written concerning us. So Hilkiah the priest, Ahiakim, Akbor, Shaphan, Asiah, went to hold of the prophetess, the wife of Shalom, the son of Tikva, the son of Harad, keeper of the wardrobe. She dwelt in Jerusalem in the second quarter, and they spoke with her. Then she said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Tell the man who sent you to me, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will bring calamity on this place and on its inhabitants. All the words of the book which the king of Judah has read, because they have forsaken me and burned incense to other gods, that they might provoke me to anger with all the works of their hands. Therefore, my wrath shall be aroused against this place and shall not be quenched. But as for the king of Judah, who sent you to inquire of the Lord in this manner, you shall speak him, thus says the Lord, God of Israel, concerning the words which you have heard. Because your heart was tender and you humbled yourself before the Lord, when you heard that I spoke against this place and against its inhabitants, that they would become a desolation and a curse, and you tore your clothes and wept before me, I also have heard you, says the Lord. Surely, therefore, I will gather you to your fathers, and you shall be gathered to your grave in peace, and your eyes shall not see all the calamity which I will bring on this place. So they brought back word to the king. Let's move forward to the New Testament book of Mark, Mark chapter 2, and I'm going to be reading verses 1 through 12. And again he entered Capernaum after some days, and it was heard that he was in the house. Immediately many gathered together so that there was no longer room to receive them, not even near the door, and he preached the word to them. Then they came to him, bringing a paralytic who was carried by four men. And when they could not come near him because of the crowd, they uncovered the roof where he was. So when they had broken through, they let down the bed on which the paralytic was lying. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven you. And some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts, Why does this man speak blasphemy like this? Who can forgive sins but God alone? But immediately, when Jesus perceived in their, his spirit that they reasoned thus within themselves, he said to them, Why do you reason about these things in your heart? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven you? or to say, Arise, take up your bed and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has the power on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, Arise, take up your bed and go to your house. Immediately he arose, took up the bed, and went out in the presence of them, so that all were amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this. Move back to the book of Matthew. I'm going to be reading from Matthew chapter 8. Matthew chapter 8, verses 5 through 13. Now when Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him pleading with him, saying, Lord, my servant is lying at home paralyzed, dreadfully tormented. And Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. The centurion answered and said, Lord, I'm not worthy that you should come under my roof, but only speak a word and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to this one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard it, he marveled and said to those who followed, Assuredly, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. 
And I say to you that many will come from the east and west and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into outer darkness, and there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then Jesus said to the centurion, go your way, and as you have believed, so let it be done for you. And his servant was healed that same hour. James 4.8 says, draw near to God or nigh to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners, and purify your hearts, ye double-minded. Former Green Bay Packers great and Hall of Famer Jerry Kramer wanted to visit the campus of Fordham University, the school that his legendary coach Vince Lombardi had attended soon after Lombardi had passed away sometime around 1970. Lombardi had played as a lineman for the great nationally recognized Fordham teams of the late 1930s and was one of the famed seven blocks of granite. When Kramer visited Fordham sometime close to 1970, the university by that time had completely terminated their football program and they no longer even fielded a team. Well, upon arriving on campus, Kramer could not find any remaining vestiges of the once proud nationally acclaimed football program or evidence that Lombardi had even played there. According to Kramer, the trophies in the Fordham Gymnasium Showcase displayed only awards for the track and field program. As Kramer walked outside the field house, he noticed off in the distance that there was a group of children playing a game of pickup football on a lot not far from the Fordham locker rooms. Kramer wrote this, quote, if I had had on a pair of sneakers, I would have gone over and joined them. I don't entirely understand why, but I wanted to touch a football on the Fordham campus, end quote. I think Kramer wished in some vicarious way to be able to draw near to his old coach. We've gone through a time when people have been urging us to separate and to distance ourselves from other people. We as Christians should remember that God has called each of us to draw near to him. The Christian will experience a longing for God's presence. In this world, we may feel at times separated from God, or we might feel estranged from God. Our feelings, though, friends, and our emotions can deceive us into thinking that God doesn't see us. We might feel at different times in our life like God is distant or far away. When we read the accounts in the scriptures of the lives and the testimonies of the prophets and the writers of the scriptures and saints of God, we tend to place those heroes from scripture on a special higher spiritual plane. And certainly, God used them in a unique way to enact miracles and to enact His will. But we also need to remember that they were just people like you and me. The people that live lives chronicled in the Bible, they experienced fears. They went through periods of anxiety. They had periods of sadness that they experienced. They experienced feelings of estrangement, just like you and I do. We know that God used David as he was inspired by and led by the Holy Spirit to write most of the book of Psalms. And you might not know that the name David means beloved. But David is described in Acts 13, 22 as being a man after God's own heart. God blessed him and used him in miraculous ways. Jesus, our Lord, is the eternal God. And we know that he was the offspring of the Holy Spirit. But we also know that his earthly family was of the line of David. John 7, 42 says, Hath not the Scripture said that Christ cometh of the seed of David and out of the town of Bethlehem where David was? 
Well, we also know as a youth that David possessed a childlike faith in God that enabled him to defeat a giant warrior that the adult soldiers in the army of Israel were too fearful to engage in battle. But even David at times felt distant from God, just as you and I at times may feel distant from God. We might at times feel like God is far from us. David expressed his feelings of estrangement from God as is recorded in Psalm 22, 1 and 2. The verses say, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Why art thou so far from helping me and from the words of my roaring? Oh my God, I cry in the daytime, but thou hearest not, and in the night season am not silent. Even our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, being fully God and fully man when he was here on earth, experienced feelings of separation from God the Father when he willingly laid down his life for us as he experienced death on the cross. Matthew 27, 46 records the words of Jesus, which echo David's crying out to God to express his feeling distant or far away from God. The verse says, and about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is to say, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Living in this fallen world, a world driven and corrupted by sin and influenced by the pervasive influence of our enemy Satan, there may be times when we feel that God is distant or far from us. But friends, I want to remind you today that as you walk with God in obedience, God will always be with you. He will always be with you regardless of how you may feel. Remember that your feelings, friends, can deceive you. Remember your emotions can mislead you. I want to encourage you that if you feel distant from God, to base your decision-making and your resolve to follow God on His promises found in His Word. Stand on those promises, not on your emotions. 2 Peter 1, 3, and 4 explains the promise God has made to His children in His Word, the Bible. The verse says, according as His divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness through knowledge of Him that hath called us to glory and virtue whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by those we might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. 1 Corinthians 16, 13 reminds us to remain resolute in our faith and our confidence in God's promises. The verses say, watch, be on the alert, stand firm. Stand fast in the faith, act like men, be strong, let all that you do be done in love. Jeremiah 23 and 24 assures us that God is always nearby, friends. He's always nearby. The verse says, Am I a God at hand, saith the Lord, and not a God afar off? Can any hide himself in secret places that I shall not see him, saith the Lord? Do I not fill heaven and earth, saith the Lord? In Luke 12, 6, Jesus reminds us that God accounts for and sees and remembers the fate of every simple bird that has ever been created. Jesus said, are not five sparrows sold for two farthings? And not one of them is forgotten by God. When we're in pain and hurting, God records our hurts and he collects and saves our tears. God has the very hairs of our heads numbered. God is not far off. He is a God that is nearby. He is at hand, and He is available to help you and help me even when we may feel like He's far away. Even though God is high above the earth, and the earth is His, is his footstool, God is actively working in this world and in the hearts of believers. 
God directed David as he wrote in Psalm 113, 4 through 6, The Lord is high above all nations and his glory above the heavens. Who is like unto the Lord who dwelleth on high, who humbleth himself to behold the things that are in heaven and in the earth? Proverbs 5.21 says, For the ways of the man are before the eyes of the Lord, and he pondereth all of his goings. Well, despite David's emotional ups and downs and periods of feeling distant from God, David wrote, as was directed by the Holy Spirit, testimonies of God's nearby faithfulness in his watch over David and his intervention in the life of David. Psalm 34, 4 through 6 says, I sought the Lord and he heard me and delivered me from all my fears. They looked into him and were lightened and their faces were not ashamed. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all of his troubles. God may allow troubles and trials and bring chastening to his beloved children. A Christian sometimes feels distant from God because of hurts, infirmities, and difficulties that they're experiencing. A Christian lady a few years back with an illness once confided in me that she was worried that she was experiencing this illness because of sin in her life. Now, friends, it's always good to examine ourselves and our motives and our actions and our thoughts. It's always good for the Christian to identify and confess our sins if we have sins present in our life. And then what do we need to do? We need to turn away from them and repent from that sin. But when we experience pain, illnesses, or difficulties in our lives, that difficulty may not have any personal connection to specific sins in our life. Jesus told us in John 16, 33, that in this world we would have troubles. That's normal for Christians and non-Christians. Remember that Jesus said, as is recorded in Matthew 5.45, that the rain falls on the just and the unjust. Not all difficulties in our lives are the direct result of personal sin. When the disciples asked Jesus, as is recorded in John 9, 1 through 3, if a man's parents had sinned, resulting in that man being born blind from birth, do you remember what Jesus said? He said, neither has this man sinned nor his parents, but that the works of God should be made manifest in him. In other words, God would somehow receive glory from that man's life, regardless of his disability. Friend, if you are experiencing illness or some difficulty, the health problem may have nothing to do with your personal sinful actions. As a word of encouragement to you that are ill or or enduring afflictions, God can even use this illness to his glory to draw you even closer to him for for your good and to his glory. Remember, too, that God has a different expectation for one of his own children. God holds his own children to a higher standard. If you were a parent, you might remember at some point that you reacted differently to the actions of a visiting misbehaving neighbor boys' indiscretions or misdeeds than you did when your own sons or daughters committed that same trespass or infraction. God sometimes brings discipline, chastening, or correction to his children. That visiting neighbor child that came over to your house, they might not know or understand anything about your family's rules or standards, but your children do. You aren't going to discipline that child outside of your family the same way you're going to discipline your own family member or your own child. Hebrews 12, 5 and 6 explains God's correction. The verses say, My son, despise not the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. For whom the Lord loves, he chasteneth or disciplines, and he scourges every son that he receives. 
Now, why did you who were parents even correct your children? Well, you wanted to keep your children from hurting themselves. You wanted to keep them from hurting other people. You wanted to keep them from ruining their lives with sin. You corrected them because you loved them and you wanted them to do good things with their lives and you wanted them to bear fruit. I used to minister to the kids in the detention center and one weekend when I was at the detention center, a boy came back and talked to us and he, he said that he wanted to continue sinning in a specific way after he had been released from the detention center, and he asked me if he could still be saved and continue to willfully practice that particular sin. And I told him that if he persisted in that sin, that he would fall out of fellowship with God. A Christian willfully sinning and persisting in sin will not bear the good fruit that God intends for all of his children to bear. 1 Corinthians 1.9 says that the Christian is called unto fellowship with Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 6.14 says that we are not to engage or align ourselves to sinners in sinful relationships. Ephesians 5.11 says, and have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them. If we are a Christian, if we are a child of God, our lives should reflect Christ as we seek to imitate Him, to be imitators of Christ. When we do sin, we need to confess our sins and repent. And 1 John 1, 6 says, if we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. A person that continues to willfully sin as they claim to follow Jesus Christ is walking in the flesh and according, not according to God's spirit. Romans 8, 13 and 14 says, for if we live after the flesh, we shall die but if you through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, you shall live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons or the children of God. You know, at times a child of God may not feel close to God if they're experiencing God's testing or trials in their life. But friend, remember, when God allows us to face these trials or tests, he does that for our good. James 1, 2 through 4 says, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations or trials, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. But let patience have her perfect work, that you may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. Friend, if you are experiencing hardships or chastening or trials, remember that God is working to draw you nearer to him. He's not trying to push you away or drive you away. God is working to draw you into a closer relationship with him. God can use our hurts, our sicknesses, our infirmities, our troubles to draw us near to him. David wrote in Psalm 119.71, it's good for me that I have been afflicted, that I may learn your statutes. And in verse 75 of that same chapter, David wrote, I know, O Lord, that thy judgments are right and that thou in faithfulness hast afflicted me. As Christians, we are to seek God with our whole being, our whole heart. God's word assures us that when we do, we will find God. The prophet Jeremiah wrote to the captives in Israel explaining how God directed Jeremiah to remind him that God was faithful to intervene in their lives. Jeremiah 29, 12, and 13 conveys God's directive. The verse says, Then you shall call upon me, and you shall go and pray unto me, and I will hearken unto you or hear you. And you shall seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. Certainly, our fellowship and our relationship with God can be negatively affected when we willfully sin. Isaiah 59, 2 says, But your iniquities or your sins have separated between you and your God, and your sins have hid his face from you that he will not hear. 
Psalm 66, 18 states, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. And we know that when we pray with sinful motives and intentions, the Bible says that God will not honor those kinds of prayers. James 4, 3 and 4 says, you ask and receive not because you ask amiss that you may consume it upon your own lusts. Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that friendship of the world is enmity with God? Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is an enemy of God. Isaiah 55, 6 and 7 says, Seek ye the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return unto the Lord and he will have mercy upon him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. God wants to forgive us when we confess our sins. He wants to bring us into restoration and into a right relationship with him. When we sin, we need to confess our sin to God and repent and turn away from sin. 1 John 1, 8, 9 says, If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of all unrighteousness. Not some, not a little bit, not partial. He will forgive us of all our unrighteousness and all of our sins and to cleanse us from that unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, the verse goes on to say, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Proverbs 28, 13 says, he that covereth his sins shall not prosper, prosper, but who so confesseth and forsaketh them shall have mercy. In order to establish a relationship with God, we must believe, first believe and place our trust in Jesus Christ unto salvation. Now, last week, Pastor James taught about the importance of confessing sins to one another when you have sinned against someone or, conf- uh, or hurt someone. When we sin against someone, whenever possible, we need to confess our sins to that person if it's appropriate to do so. And whenever possible, it's good to repay or make restitution to that person that's been harmed or offended by us. Sometimes that's not possible to do that. But when it is, we should do that. To become near to God, we must first believe and trust Jesus Christ unto salvation. We must believe that only his shed blood can redeem us and bring us close to him. Before we trust Jesus Christ unto salvation, friends, all of us are far away from him. Ephesians 2, 12 and 13 explains, the the verse says, that at that time you were without Christ being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, but now in Christ Jesus, ye who were sometimes afar off, are made near or nigh by the blood of Christ. Hebrews 11.6 says, But without faith it's impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Now, in our reading of the Old Testament life of the king of King Josiah, found in 2 Kings 22. We read about a king that repented in obedience to God and sought to draw near to God. In fact, 2 Kings 23, 25 states that Josiah was unique among the kings of Israel and Judah. The verse says, and like unto him, there was no king before him that turned to the Lord with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his might, according to all the laws of Moses. Neither after him arose there any like him. Now, what made Josiah unique? Well, his obedience to God and his turning toward God and his desire to be near to God. Second Chronicles 34.3 records the fact that Josiah, even at an early age, desired to 
draw near to God. Second Chronicles 34, 2 and 3 says that he, Josiah, did right in the sight of the Lord and walked in the ways of his father David and did not turn aside to the right or to the left. For in the eighth year of his reign, and that means he was about 16 years old at that time, while he was still a youth, he began to seek the God of his father David. And in the twelfth year, he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of the high places, the ashram, the carved images, and the molten images. Now, what were these? These were pagan idols to false gods. Josiah followed the guidelines prescribed by Moses and the kings of Israel that, as, that they were to follow that are recorded in Deuteronomy 17, 11 through 20. And we didn't read that, but you can read that on your own. But he followed God's ways and was more obedient than any king of Israel or Judah. He was as obedient and godly as his ancestor David had been. Josiah began by tearing down and removing these idols and false gods. And the, God's word says that he even ground them into dust or powder. Friends, as we seek to draw near to God, we, like Josiah, should be seeking to remove idols in our lives. We should be seeking to remove any impediment that would distance us from doing the will of God and walking in His ways. We should seek to leave behind and turn away from sin. David was inspired by the Holy Spirit as he wrote, as is recorded in Psalm 51, 9 through 11. He said, Hide thy face from my sins and blot out all mine iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from thy presence and take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Well, as Josiah sought God and turned away from sin, something wonderful happened to him. Josiah directed the workmen and the priests to repair the temple, and they collected money to finance the needed renovations in the house of the Lord. This was an improvement project. This was a project to repair that which had been broken down. This was a building, the house of God, in need of repair. Well, I want to challenge the child of God desiring to draw near to God today to consider steps that you can take to repair and improve your temple of the Holy Spirit and how you can bring glory to God through your service and to the local body of believers. As a child of God, you are to act as and become a part of a body of believers, a church. That's why we have church. We're instructed to. Romans 12, 4 and 5 says, For as we have many members in one body, and all members have not the same office, so we being many are one body in Christ, and every one members one of another. How are you and I using our time, our talents, our abilities and resources to bless others in the body of Christ? Are you part of the maintenance crew that provides prayer, love, support, helps and encouragement to other believers in the body of Christ? What about your own body and your own spiritual amelioration, maintenance, and needed restoration? Christian, remember, you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. 2 Corinthians 6, 16 and 17 explains. The verses say, And what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God hath said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Wherefore, come out from among them and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean things, and I will receive you, God says. Sin disrupts our fellowship with God and impedes us from bearing godly fruit. Sin always hurts someone, usually the person sinning. If we aren't being led by God's Spirit, we are becoming carnal and spiritually speaking, breaking down. Proverbs twenty-five twenty-eight explains this kind of spiritual dilapidation 
that occurs when the Christian lacks self-control by failing to be led by the Holy Spirit. Proverbs 25, 28 says, He that hath no rule over his own spirit is like a city that is broken down and without walls. Now, we know that in ancient times, cities without walls were open to attack. They were vulnerable. They lacked protection. When we willfully sin against God and we open ourselves to difficulty, pain, hurts, woes, and unnecessary suffering because of sin and degradation, we are like that building without walls or that city without walls. You know, there's an old folk song entitled, I'm Working on a Building, that describes the Christian. If you're a child of God, you have become part of his household, and you should be working with God's help to build up and maintain that building. Ephesians 2, 19, 21, and 22 explains this truth. The verses say, So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in spirit. For the believer to draw near to God, it's helpful to be a part of maintaining the body of Christ and their own temple, the temple of the Holy Spirit. Well, as Josiah directed these renovations of the temple, something else wonderful happened. The king obtained the word of God. Hilkiah the priest found a copy of the scriptures, the word of God. Josiah gained access to a treasure that would help him to act as a godly king to help his people and to draw near to God. It's believed that the ungodly kings that had preceded Josiah may have destroyed the copies of God's written word that had, been, had not been hidden. Having access to God's word suddenly changed Josiah's life. When Shaphan read the scriptures to Josiah, the truth immediately penetrated his heart and caused him to rent or tear his garment. Now, you probably know that tearing one's garment was an outward act of grief or sorrow. It was an outward demonstration of contrition or repentance before God. You see, Josiah just didn't feel badly. He acted. He shared the truth that he now had access to with everyone in his kingdom. 2 Kings 23, 2 records Josiah's action. The verse says, And the king went up into the house of the Lord, and all the men of Judah, and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem with him, and the priests and the prophets, and all the people, both small and great. And he read in their ears all the words of the book of the covenant, which was found in the house of the Lord. In verse 3 of 2 Kings 23, Josiah made a promise. He made a commitment to God to walk after the Lord and to keep his testimonies and his statutes. But Josiah didn't stop there. He acted, as is chronicled in 2 Kings 20, chapter 23, to remove all the idols, shrines, and places of worship to these false gods and these ungodly influences. He removed those from his kingdom. Now, how did Josiah draw near to God? Well, I see five steps that Josiah took that enabled him to draw near to God. First, he sought God. He looked for God. Second, he heard and listened to the word of God. Remember, Romans 10, 17 reminds us that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And when we hear God's word and we read God's word, we give God a place in our lives to speak to us through his word. Three, he shared and read the truth of God's word with other people, the people in his kingdom. Four, he made a public confession and a commitment to God. It was public. It wasn't a secret. And five, he acted in accordance with God's word. He lived out 
God's word and followed God's commands. As a result of his actions, Josiah left behind a legacy of faith and a testimony and evidence of his love for God that we still have today. When we live out and act on our faith, we provide substantive evidence of our faith. Hebrews 11.1 1 says, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. What can we learn about drawing near to God from the actions of the four men that sought a healing for their friend described in Mark 2, 1 through 13? These four faithful, nameless friends of a man that was paralyzed demonstrated that they knew that a touch from and nearness to Jesus Christ could provide complete healing for their suffering friend. But they faced a problem. You see, Jesus was in the house that day, but the throng surrounding Jesus was so thick and dense that they couldn't draw near to their deliverer, their healer, their savior, their redeemer. But did they give up? No. They made up their minds that drawing, if drawing near to Jesus meant that they would have to literally rip the roof off a building, they would, to gain access to Jesus, their savior, they would do it. But consider this question. If these four friends of the paralytic had any doubt about Jesus's power and his ability to heal their friend, do you think they would have taken such drastic measures going as far as ripping the roof off a building in order to deliver their friend to Jesus? No, I don't think so. I think they trusted and believed that Jesus could heal a man that quite possibly could have been a quadriplegic. Their faith was so strong that nothing would stop them from drawing near to Jesus. They simply would not be deterred. These four men demonstrated faith by acting and by persevering in their faith. Their faith was made tangible by their actions. Mark 2, 5 says, And that when Jesus saw their faith, he said unto the sick of the palsy, Son, thy sins be forgiven thee. And their friend was miraculously healed. But notice that even though Jesus brought physical healing to this severely disabled man, he first addressed the man's spiritual condition and his need to have his sins addressed, forgiven, and removed. Why? Because unless Jesus returns before we die, our eventual physical death is a certainty. When Jesus addressed this man's spiritual state, he was addressing an issue that had eternal implications, specifically where he would spend eternity in heaven or separated from God permanently in hell. In order for us to receive the gift of eternal life and spiritual healing, we must believe and place our trust in the shed blood of Jesus Christ. We must confess our sins, allow him to forgive our iniquities and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If God heals our physical bodies, friends, our, our healing is a blessing, but that may only last for 70, 80, or 100 years. Friends, when we trust and believe Jesus Christ to receive that gift of salvation, we're receiving a blessing that will last forever. Salvation is eternal. It's a permanent gift that no one can take from us. Friends, we need to live out the faith, enduring resolve, and perseverance that the four roof busters evidently had. 1 Corinthians 15, 58 describes the kind of resolute demonstration of faith that we are to possess. The verse says, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. For as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord, the works that you do unto Jesus Christ, as James was saying, they'll have eternal implications. It's not something that's, that's gone here today and gone tomorrow. The four believers' act of mercy and persistence was not in vain because they would not give up until they saw that their friend was healed and restored. 
Have you ever thought about the fact that in addition to their faith in what Jesus could do, how much those four friends must have loved that disabled man? They must have really loved him. Have you ever thought about how they must have considered this man to be their very dear and important friend? Child of God, I want to remind you today of how important it is for you and me to demonstrate love for other people and for others in the household of faith. 1 John 4.20 says, If a man say, I love God, but hateth his brother, he's a liar. For he that loveth not his brother, whom he hath seen, how can he love God, whom he hath not seen? When we love God, we demonstrate our love for people, not just with our words, but also through our actions. James 2, 15 and 16 explains how we are to act in love as we reach out to minister to others. The verses say, if a brother or sister be naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you say unto them, depart in peace, be ye warmed and filled, notwithstanding you give them not those things which are needful to the body, what doth it profit? Even so, faith, if it hath not works, is dead, being alone. We need to minister to the needs of those that are hurting. Have you ever considered the possibility that the four friends may have, been, may have been held responsible to pay for the repairs to the roof that they had destroyed in order to bring their friend near to Jesus? Now, God's Word doesn't say that. We don't know for sure. But it is possible that their act of mercy may have cost them something. They may have had to work to repair that roof in that building. We don't know. God's Word doesn't make that clear. Now, you may look at the work of ministry that these four men performed, and you might think, well, okay, their circumstances are different than the circumstances I'm facing today. Jesus isn't around ministering in the world in the same way today as he was during the time of his earthly ministry when he was fully God and fully man here on earth. I can't be near to Jesus. I can't go to him and touch him and allow him to touch me. I can't go up to him and make personal physical contact with him. I can't take my hurting loved one to Jesus so that Jesus can touch him or her. When you feel this way, I want to challenge you to remember that you and I have an opportunity to show even greater faith than the Roman centurion demonstrated when he believed Jesus for the healing of his much-beloved paralyzed servant referred to in Matthew 8, 5 through 13 that we read. The centurion's faith was so strong that he knew that Jesus could heal his friend even if Jesus wasn't under his roof or in his house. The centurion's faith was so strong that he knew that Jesus didn't have to visit his home and make direct physical contact with his suffering servant in order to deliver him from his affliction. The centurion said, as is recorded in Matthew 8, 8, Lord, I'm not worthy that thou shouldst come under my roof, but speak the word only and my servant shall be healed. Jesus healed the centurion's paralyzed servant and commended him a Gentile for his great faith. Now, some believe that the centurion may have understood that Jesus, a Jew, would have been, become ceremonially undefiled if he had entered the home of a, a Jewish person or non-Jewish person, and that the centurion didn't want to create problems and place an undue burden on Jesus by making him ceremonially unclean. When the G Jewish leaders took Jesus into the hall of judgment, as is recorded in John 18, 28, they did not enter the Gentile hall because they did not want to be defiled and kept from being able to participate in the Passover. Well, listen, we can demonstrate faith like the centurions as we seek to draw near to God today. We can't receive 
Jesus' physical touch, as many did that were healed during Jesus' time of earthly ministry. But we can pray and trust God for his healing and intervention in our lives, despite the fact that we cannot, at the present time, make physical contact with our Savior Jesus. James 4.8 explains and describes specific actions that we are to take in order to draw near to God. First, we are to cleanse our hands. We are to purify our hearts. And the verse also indicates that being double-minded is something that we are not to be. What does it mean to cleanse our hands? This means that we are to demonstrate change in our outward person, in our outward behavior, in our outward actions. We are to have the evidence of our faith that I mentioned earlier. People should see a transformation take, life, take place in the life of a believer as an outward testimony of God's work in that person's life. Romans 12, 1 and 2 describes this outward evidence. The verses say, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. The four men didn't just say or think that they loved their friend and that Jesus could heal them. They acted on their faith. They demonstrated their faith. James 4.8 says that we are to purify our hearts. Well, what does that mean? Well, purifying our hearts means that our mind and inward thoughts change as our mind is renewed and transformed. Our thoughts and motives, desires, when we become a Christian, a child of God, begin to align with God's as we are led by His Holy Spirit, as the Holy Spirit resides in us. Some people say, I can't do certain things. I, I can't love my enemies. You can't, friend, on your own. But when the Holy Spirit empowers you, you can do anything that God has called you to do. When we place our trust in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit resides in us. Romans 8, 11 explains, the verse says, but if the, in the, if the Spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by his Spirit that dwelleth in you. Finally, we're instructed by God's Word not to be double-minded. We are to live and think and act in faith. The four friends, the centurion, Josiah, they acted in faith. They were single-minded in their faith, trust, and devotion to God. They didn't waver. Their actions demonstrated, proved, and confirmed their faith. The father, excuse me, James 1, 6 through 8 says, But let him ask in faith, nothing wavering, for he that wavereth is like a wave on the sea driven with the wind and tossed. For let not that man think that he shall receive anything of the Lord, a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. Now, wait a minute. Does this mean that God hates us and despises us when we have doubts or questions in our minds about God's working in our lives? No, friend, no. When we experience doubt or when we have questions, we should behave as the man did that came to Jesus asking that his son be healed and delivered that's recorded in Mark 9, 23 and 24, and we didn't read that today, but you can read that on your own. The verses say, and Jesus said unto this man, if thou canst believe all things are possible to him that believeth, and straightway the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. Now this father didn't deny that he had doubts. He didn't pretend. He did two really good things. First, he recognized his doubts. 
He turned from them and willfully decided to trust Jesus and believe in spite of his doubts. And then he asked Jesus to help him to believe and continue to have faith. Friend, listen, when you have doubts, don't beat yourself up. Don't bring recriminations upon yourself when you experience doubt. Listen, pray in faith and ask God to help your unbelief. When you do that, listen, praying shows that you do believe. Praying is itself an act of faith. Christian, continue to draw near to God. Remember that he is a God that is nearby and a God that is at hand. Continue to seek God and believe his promises. Stand firm with resolve to follow him regardless of your circumstances, even unto death. Live your life as a testimony of your abiding faith and his abiding love for you. Act in obedience to do God's will, believing that he will empower you. He will enable you to persevere in your faith. Philippians 1.6 says, being confident of this very thing, that he which began a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Continue to seek a nearness to God. Acts 17, 27 and 28 says, that they should seek the Lord if happily they might feel after him and find him, though he be not far away from every one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our Lord will last forever. I want to close in prayer. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for salvation. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for your shed blood. It's made it possible for us to have that gift of eternal life, that we don't have to live in fear and anxiety knowing that your grace is sufficient for us, that that's all we really need in this world. And Lord, we thank you that you are at hand, that you are a God that is nearby. Lord, help each of us to remember that. Give us boldness, Lord, as we go out into the world outside the doors of this and walls of this church and share the gospel with other people. Lord, help us to love people the way you love people. Help us, Lord, when we have doubts, to confess those doubts and ask you to help our unbelief, that our faith would be strengthened and bolstered. Lord, I pray all these things with thanksgiving. And Lord, I thank you for each of the people here today. Lord, I pray if there be anybody here today or online that's listening that has never trusted you as their Savior, Lord, that you would call them to you by the power of your Holy Spirit, that they would know you today. Lord, we ask these things praying that not our will be done, but your will be done, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.